So the question is, how do we develop this, the skill that's involved in long-term welfare and happiness? And there are two passages here that I'd like us to go over. First is the, the Galama Sutta. Okay, and I'll read this to you for those of you who don't, don't have the, the, the passages. <clears throat> My fear is that these readings are going to come here as we finish the, ch- the, the passages this morning. Number three. As they were sitting to one side, the Galamas of Gesa Buddha said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, there have been some priests and contemplatives who come to Gesa Buddha. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. And then other priests and contemplatives come to Gesa Buddha. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. They leave us simply uncertain and doubtful. Which of these venerable priests and contemplatives are speaking the truth and which ones are lying? And the Buddha's response is, of course you're uncertain, Galamas, of course you're doubtful. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, he says, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability or by the thought this contemplative is our teacher. We'll back up and cover that in a minute. When you know for yourselves that these qualities, now the word quality here is a translation for dhamma. And in this sense, dhamma can mean several things. It can mean phenomena. It can also mean actions. That's one of the uses of the word dhamma that most people don't know about, but it's, it's it's one of the meanings. A dhamma can be an action that you do. So you might you might replace the word qualities with phenomena, or you might replace them with actions. These qualities are unskillful. These qualities are blameworthy. These qualities are criticized by the wise. These qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and suffering. Then you should abandon them. In other words, if you see something, either a quality or an action that is, leads to harm, then you should drop them. And you do this by looking at one, seeing that it's unskillful. It's as the Buddha says, when you know for yourselves, you see this in your own actions. And he's going to illustrate this principle a little bit further down. But he also says these qualities are criticized by the wise. Now, I've many times seen this, trans- this passage translated as the Buddha says, um, don't go by scripture, don't go by traditions, go by your own sense of right and wrong. That's a mistranslation. Because look at what he says. Back up a bit. He says, don't go by reports, don't go by legends, by traditions, by scripture. Okay, that's, okay you can't take tradition as your final authority. He also says, don't go by conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views. Okay, that's basically using your powers of logic. So just logic in and of itself is not enough to tell you. Also, agreement through pondering views means that you like it because it fits in what you, are, what you already believe. Hmm. You don't go by probabilities or by the thought that this contemplative is our teacher. In other words, whatever the teacher says has got to be right. You don't go by that either. You have to know for yourself. These qualities or these actions, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and suffering. Now, how are you going to know that unless you, unless you adopt and carry out some of these things or have had experience adopting and carrying them out? Now, fortunately, the Buddha doesn't, doesn't take, if you want to know what's unskillful, go out and be unskillful for a while. And you'll see. Um, he assumes that you've had some experience as a human being already, have some idea. <clears throat> and so he talks to their experience. 
What do you think, Galamas? When greed arises in a person, does it arise for benefit or harm? They say for harm. And this greedy person, overcome by greed, mind possessed by greed, <clears throat> doesn't he kill living beings? This is sexist. Doesn't she kill living beings, too? She does that, too. Take what is not given, go after another person's wife or husband, tell lies, and induce others to do likewise, all of which is for long-term harm and suffering. That's right. And then he goes through the same thing with aversion and delusion. So he says, so he's speaking to their experience. Okay, what do you think? Are these qualities skillful or unskillful? They're unskillful. Blameworthy or blameless? Blameworthy. Criticized by the wise or praised by the wise? These are criticized by the wise. Okay, when adopted and carried out, did they lead to harm and suffering or not? And they do lead to harm and suffering. And then he takes the opposite tack. Okay. Lack of greed, lack of aversion, and lack of delusion will lead you to not doing unskillful things. So the, the source of what is skillful or unskillful lies in qualities in the mind. And again, the way you learn about this is to look at your experience. But not only your experience, you also consult wise people. And people you consider to be wise, people you consider to have, have experience. So you can get their perspective as well. And so this is, this is the basic approach of learning a skill. You, you look at your experience and you realize if, you know, if something is a mistake, you admit it and you don't do it again. This is a really hard lesson for many of us to learn. We'll go into this a little bit further with the next reading. Are there any questions on that passage? Yes. Who's wise? Yeah. How, how do? How do? Yeah. Exactly. And that, again, the, the Buddha gives you some 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 sort of basic qualities that you should look for in a person that you would want to consult. But it's again, if you're looking for a t t totally airtight logical system, he's not going to give it. You got to try it. Yeah. But he says, I mean, you look for people who are generous. People who believe you know, that their actions make a difference and they're therefore very careful about what they do. Third, you look for people who are virtuous. And then finally, people who understand how to put an end to suffering. Those are people he considers as wise. The type of people he said you want to, you want to hang around, you want to associate with. And basically, you look for someone who looks to be really happy. That's what it comes down to. I know that's what first attracted me to Buddhism. I, the teacher I ended up spending 10 years studying with, he struck me as the happiest person I knew I'd ever met. I figured he must have something uh, other people don't know, and I want to learn it. And this is why the Buddha says at one point that, that having good friends is the whole of the, the practice, because that's what gets you motivated to practice. To one, believe that, one, it is possible to find a true happiness, and two, there's somebody who actually embodies it. And three, they can tell you how to do it. It's not something they're born with, but it's a, it's a path to practice. But yeah, you're right, it does beg the question, but if you're going to go around looking for unbegged questions, you never get anywhere. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> it doesn't mean that you avoid them. It means that you just don't look to them for guidance. Guidance? Guidance, yes. Are you a guidance counselor? 
there are cases like that when you find that you're adopting their attitudes or you're adopting their ways of looking at things. You might say, I've just got to get away from this person for a while. And, and, it, go, and it becomes something as subtle as... Um, well, it's not good for Dharma teachers to teach the Dharma to too many good people all at once for long periods of time. Because after a while you start playing to the crowd subconsciously. You know that old experiment they do in college? You get a professor who walks back and forth in front of the room, and the kids in the room decide, okay, when the professor's in this corner, we'll look at him. When he's over at that corner, we'll not, we won't look at him. And after two or three classes, you have him standing in the corner. It's that subconscious a thing. Or even that just the issue I read yesterday that um, they had a poll which asked people, you know, if you had to choose between an environmentally sound policy and an, a policy that would be good for the economy, which would you choose? As if that were the only set of alternatives. And that way of framing the question, if you, if you hang around people who frame questions that way, you pick up their attitudes as well. So you have to watch out for that. But if you can be clear about okay, who you're going to listen to and who you're not going to listen to, which in and of itself is an important practice, then you can start dealing with other people. My times as a, my, I was my teacher's attendant the last six years of his life. And because he was sick on and off so much, um, lots of people had lots of ideas about how he should be treated or what, you know, what kind of doctors he should go to and what kind of medicine he should take. And I made the mistake of one time of actually following somebody's suggestion. <laughs> and he said, did I tell you to do that? And I said, no. He said, well, don't listen to them. <laughs> and it became a really important part of my training was just not to listen. And of course, because I was not following through with people's suggestions, I was the lightning rod. But you, after a while, you just have to learn, I'm just not going to listen to that stuff. And that's an important part of your training, who you're going to listen to and who you won't. Any other questions on the Galama Sutta? Can we stop for a second make sure everybody gets there? If you don't have a sheet, please raise your hand. Warm, hot off kinkos, yes. <laughs> now you can begin to notice that underlying all this issue of the quest for long-term happiness, you've got at least two of the idibadas, two of these bases of success are already operating. One is desire. And then the second one is using your powers of discrimination, seeing that some forms of happiness are better than others. And that your that your activity is important in determining which you're going to get. The next passage goes and incorporates all four of the idibadas. They're not mentioned, but they're implicit in what the Buddha has to say. 
this is a passage I like to throw into almost every study guide I do because it's so basic to the practice. Buddha talking to his son, Rahula. I'll give you a little background. Rahula at this point is seven years old. He was just recently ordained as a novice. There are lots of stories about Rahula's becoming a novice. Um, You may know the story. The Buddha goes home to visit his family. And after all the pleasantries and everything are over, the Buddha's wife, who has been stuck with Rahula for six years, seven years, sends Rahula off to his father and says, go ask your father for your inheritance. (laughs) And the Buddha turns to Sariputta and says, ordain him. (laughs) (laughs) This caused a lot of problem in the family. (laughs) And from that point on, there there was a rule that before anyone ordained, you had to get the parents' permission. At any rate, Rahula, as a young, as a young novice, he, he, has, he has trouble. Um, there was a rule against monks sleeping in the same room with unordained people. Now, there are two, I back up a little bit, there are two levels of ordination. There's novice ordination, and then there's full ordination. And there was one time when a group of monks were sleeping in the same room with a lot, some lay people, and as, you know, the monks, as they were sleeping, they snored, and they talked in their sleep, and they exposed themselves. And they're generally not, not impressive and not... not um, confidence-inspiring in, their, in the way they slept. And so the Buddha had the rule that monks should not sleep with people who are not fully ordained. This meant that Rahula, who was a novice, didn't have a place to stay because all the, all the huts were taken up by the monks. So he spent the night in the outhouse. And in the middle of the night, Sariputta goes out to go to the bathroom. And he, <clears throat> before he goes into the, into the room, he senses there's somebody in there. So he clears his throat, and Rahula clears his throat. And then Sariputta says, what are you doing in there so long? And Rahula says, I'm spending the night. <laughs> so they had to change the rules that gave, so that novices had places to stay. At any rate, you know, Rahula had problems. But he was a good kid. He was really determined to practice. However, in this particular passage, leading up to the passage I have here, the Buddha comes to visit Rahula late in the afternoon. Rahula sees him coming. He sets out a jar of water for him to wash his feet. And you get the feeling that Rahula probably told a lie that day. Because the first thing the Buddha talks about is lies. He washes his feet. He leaves a little bit of water left in the dipper. He says to Rahula, do you see this little bit of water left in the dipper? And Rahula says, yeah. He says, that's how little goodness there is in someone who tells a deliberate lie and doesn't feel ashamed. Rahula's probably squirming at this point. Okay. Then the Buddha takes a little bit of water and throws it away. He sees how that water is thrown away. And Rahula says, yeah. Is that's what happens to the goodness of a person who tells a deliberate lie and doesn't feel ashamed. It gets thrown away, just like that. And after several more games with a, with a dipper, you can feel like Rahula's got the message. Okay. The message is that okay, essential to the practice is that you be honest. That you really look at yourself. Now, honesty is an important factor in that third itibata, the jitta one of being intent on something, really looking seriously and not, not denying what's there. So, be honest. And then what do you be honest about? And this is where the Buddha talks about intentions. We talked about this on Monday night, for those of you who were here, that your intentions are probably one of the most mysterious parts of your mind for most people. I mean, as children, we were taught to lie about our intentions. I didn't mean to hit him. Okay, then you know, the punishment is less than if you had meant to hit him. 
And be, after lying to our parents about our intentions so much, we begin to lie to ourselves. We don't like to admit when we have less than honorable intentions. And yet the Buddha is saying, the first thing you should look at is your intentions. Before you're going to do something, ask, why am I doing it? Okay. So this is, this is where we get into this passage with Rahula. What do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? Rahula says, for reflection, sir. The Buddha says, in the same way, Rahula, bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to perform a bodily act, you should reflect on it. This bodily act I want to perform, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or both? Is it an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be unskillful, etc., then you don't do it. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be skillful and with happy consequences, it is fit for you to do. Then it goes, same for verbal acts and mental acts. Okay. okay, that's before you do it. While you're doing it, he says, while you're doing it, you reflect on it. Is this act I'm, in, I'm doing, again, is it leading to self-affliction, the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it is leading to self-affliction, etc., then you should give it up. But if on reflection you know that it is not, you may continue with it. Same with verbal acts and mental acts. Okay, and then after you performed it, if you notice that it turned out that even though you thought it wasn't going to be harmful, you didn't see any harm coming while you were doing it, but on long term you discovered that it led to affliction, or either to yourself or others, then you should confess it, reveal it, lay it open to the teacher or to a knowledgeable companion in the holy life. And then having confessed it, you should exercise restraint in the future. But if on reflection you show it did not lead to affliction, it was a skillful act with happy consequences, then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful, training day and night in skillful mental qualities. Okay. And similarly with verbal acts. As for mental acts, he says, if you see that it was painful, you don't necessarily have to confess it because it was just an act of mind. Then you should feel horrified, humiliated, and disgusted with it. <laughs> How could I do that? <laughs> Feeling horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, you should exercise restraint in the future. But if you saw that your mental act did not lead to painful results, that it was a skillful mental act with happy consequences, happy results, then again, you should stay mentally refreshed, joyful, training day and night in skillful mental qualities. Now, there's several important points here. One, look to how those four qualities, the four idibadas, are being used here. Okay, one, there's the desire for happiness, which is basic to any, skill, any approach to skill. Secondly, there's the discrimination between what is going to be a skillful act and what's not going to be. You exercise your powers of discrimination before, during, and after each action. Secondly, you have to be intent in order to see this. I mean, this, 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 is, a, this is quite an intent, intensive mental training that's going on here. Looking at your actions, looking at why you're doing them after they're done, you maintain intent on looking at your actions and their results. And then finally, there's the element of persistence. You have to keep at this over and over and over again. You put a lot of effort into this self-examination. Because, as I said, this is one area where it is so easy to lie to yourself. So easy, it was so easy to practice self-delusion. Secondly, there's 
the point that some of the results will come while you're doing the act and some of the results will come after it's done. This relates to the Buddha, all the, the Buddha's sort of basic teachings on causality is that sometimes causes have effects immediately, sometimes they have effects over time. And so you have to watch for both. Because sometimes something that may seem to be okay while you're doing it actually has different results over time. So you have to watch. You can't simply say, well, this is something I feel like doing. It feels good. Nothing seems to be going wrong while I'm doing it. That's not enough. You have to look at the long term. Secondly, notice that he has you, if it's a verbal act or a physical act, he says, talk it over with somebody else. One, the ability to confess this is an important psychological ability. That you're not always hiding your dark side from other people or not trying to, not trying to hide your dark side from other people. And this helps <clears throat> with that quality of self-honesty that you're going to need as you develop a skill. And secondly, you get their input as well. Sometimes you confess something and the other person says, well, actually, you don't have to confess that because that wasn't really why the suffering came about based on that other person's experience. So you tap into the knowledge, as he says, talk to someone who's knowledgeable in the holy life and pick up their perspective as well. So this way you benefit both from your own powers of observation and from the observation of other people. Any questions on that passage or some of the implications? Yes. In which case, you try to minimize it. Right. I mean, that's, that's all that's humanly possible. But, um, so that means, I mean, think about <clears throat> the next time you feel tempted to go down and buy a new dress. Do you really need this? Um, when you're eating, do you really need this? When you're, when you're looking at your shelter, your house, do you really need to spend more money, get more things? I mean, it really encourages a frugal lifestyle. Not only for the sake of frugality, but also when you're frugal, you also have more to be generous with. There's another, another hand. Yes? He's, he's talking about in, intentional mental acts, not just things that pop up in the mind, unbidden. And again, that's an important distinction to make. Because anything can come up in your mind. I mean, the mind is, is designed to churn up stuff all the time. And a lot of that comes from your past karma. And so it's seeing, okay, this, this came from something I'm not doing right now. And then that, how you react to it, how you choose to react to that, that's your intentional act. And you can decide to 
you can, can decide to suppress it, which may not be skillful because it's going to come up again. Or you can decide, I, I can't deal with that right now, I just let it alone. Or you actually work with it. Um, there are lots of ways you can decide. Again, you have to decide, are you ready to work with it? Because a lot of stuff that comes up, you say, I'm, I, don't have, I don't have the, metal, the, the powers of concentration or the powers of discernment I need to deal with this thoroughly. But I'll you know, take care of it as I can. Which can be simply mean, okay, note that it's there. I've got that problem. I'll get around to it when I can handle it. Or sort of chip away at it the best you can. And again, it's sort of a process of, of basically trial and error, trial and success, learning from your mistakes and from what works. So it's, but it goes on not, not just to you know, your mental acts during the day, but you know, the practice of meditation is a mental action. It's a deliberate thing that you do. And there's a question of whether you're skillful or not. And we'll be getting more into this a little bit more in the afternoon. But it's important that you, you approach meditation as a skill. Because otherwise it just becomes, well, I've got to sit here and I've got to note everything that comes up. That can get pretty threatening after a while. Because you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're subject to these things and you're not allowed to do anything about them, then you're defenseless. But you've got to decide, okay, there's, there are times when you can deal with them, times when you have to just watch them, times when you can shoot them down. And it's important to see meditation as a skill. Anything else? You, you had hmm? Cancel. Cancel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Was it an unskillful question? <laughs> Excuse me. That turned out to be an unskillful time to eat that. <clears throat> What's interesting here is that the, the, the concluding passage of this, where he says that all the priests and contemplatives in the course of the past who purified their bodily acts, mental acts, verbal acts, did it through repeated reflection on their bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts in just this way. So this is a process of purification in which it means that you learn how to act in ways that cause less and less and less suffering and greater and greater long-term happiness. And this is how you do it. You look at what you do. You see what your plan is. And we'll get back to this later. It turns out that people who are very skillful tend to go into an action having run it through their mind first, what they were going to do. There was an interesting story. I don't want to save all the good stories for the afternoon. Um, there was a surgeon. His name was Charlie Wilson at UC San Francisco. Who's supposed to, I don't know if he's still working there or not. He's retired. But he was, he was supposed to be you know, number one. Yeah, he was number one in the, in the country. And they told about one time he performed a surgery. And he was, as he was coming out, he sort of ran the tape of the surgery back through his mind, what he had done. And he realized that before he had gone into the surgery, he had kind of run the tape through before he went into the room. And as he was running the second tape, and the second tape didn't correspond to the first. There was a step he had missed. And so he went back into the room, scrubbed up again, and the, you know, the patient was still there on the table. And went in, and sure enough, there was a little piece of the tumor he'd missed that he hadn't checked for. So that's how you do things skillfully. You, 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 know, you look at, you plan what you're going to do, then you do it, and then you compare what your plan was with the actual execution. And so the Buddha is telling you know, Rahula, be deliberate about what you do. If something's important enough to be in you know, a full-blown full intention, 
think it through first, and then act. And then reflect after you did it. You know, did it correspond with your plan? Was there some place where you need to re, you know, redesign your tape, go back and erase, make a new tape? But in the course of doing this, reflecting on what you're doing, being deliberate about what you're doing, is how you purify your actions so they get more and more skillful, more and more appropriate for them, for the circumstances. Okay. Anything else before we go on to the next one? Yes. real skill is learning how to improvise. Realizing sometimes, okay, you can plan for it and then things, new conditions come up that you hadn't anticipated and you have to adjust for those. I didn't warn you at the beginning of the course. I had a couple ideas this morning that required reorganizing the entire presentation. And I don't think I got them thoroughly worked through. So they're going to be disjointed sections today. So I'm, I'm, I'm winging it today at some points. But yeah, we'll be getting to that later, that the ability to, once you've learned, you've been through that circum those circumstances enough times, you begin to realize where you can improvise and where you have to stick to the basic principles. And that's something you learn only over time and with experience. So, as you say, as you, say you, have to have, you have to maintain part of your beginner's mind, but you also have to train your beginner's mind. But the improvisation is is the quality that puts them all together. All these four factors get put together. So I was trying to see where the four factors that you mentioned come into what he says in the book. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're indicating? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you say more clearly how... Okay, one, desire. Desire, the desire not to do anything harmful. The desire to cause long-term happiness. That underlies the whole thing. If you didn't care about whether you were happy or not, then you wouldn't have any desire to, to become more skillful. Secondly, persistence. You do this again and again and again. Thirdly, intentness. You really look carefully at what you've done. Look carefully at your intention. Look carefully at your action while you're doing it. Look carefully at the results. And then finally, powers of discrimination. Sensing when an intention or when an action is skillful or not, when the results are skillful or not. And then the quality that you just brought up, which is the power to improvise. That basically puts them all together. Your desire to do it better the next time. And having a sense of cause and effect so that your, your, your new ways of approach would actually be effective rather than just a stab in the dark. Yes? Um, well, then I, when you said that, I got curious about his idea that you should feel harmed by humiliating justice mm -hmm. with yourself. Not with yourself, with the action. What? With the action.
It's, you have to make, make a distinction between feeling ashamed about yourself and ashamed about particular actions. Um, I mean, this is based, remember, Rahula was a member of the Noble Warrior caste. And if there's anybody who had a sense of pride, it's that, it was that caste. And they also had the strongest sense of shame that certain acts were not up to their, their standards. And so you're not dumping on yourself because you're a bad person. You basically, okay, made a mistake. This is not up to my standards. So in that case, the shame is not debilitating. It actually helps you to reflect on what you did wrong. Does it make sense? Okay, let's go on to right effort. <clears throat> one of the interesting things about this formula for right effort, which is one of the factors in the Noble Path, and it's also one of the sets of qualities in the Wings to Awakening, it's set apart as something equivalent. If you follow right effort, that's equivalent to following the Noble Path altogether. And it contains some of the itibodas, it contains some of the basis for success. Just as the basis for success, as we'll see later on, contains some of the formula for right effort. And we do it for time. And what is right effort? There's a case where a monk generates desire, first itibada, endeavors, activates persistence, second itibada, upholds and exerts his intent, third itibada. That's jitta. So we've got chanda, wirdiya, and jitta right there. For the sake of the non-arising of evil, unskillful qualities that have not yet arisen, and then again, for the sake of the abandoning of evil, unskillful qualities that have arisen, for the sake of the arising of skillful qualities that have not yet arisen, and for the maintenance, non-confusion, increased plenitude and development and culmination excuse me, of skillful qualities that have arisen. Okay, this is called right effort. So implicit here, explicit, excuse me, explicit is desire, persistence, and intent, which are three of the idipadas. Implicit is the ability to discriminate between what is skillful and what is unskillful. So you have both explicitly and implicitly, you've got the four itibadas are required for right effort. And again, the focus of the right effort is to get more and more skillful. So that you drop, you prevent things that are unskillful from arising, you drop any unskillful things that have arisen, try to give rise to skillful qualities, and once they have been given rise to, then you try to maintain them, keep them going. So that's right effort. Questions on that one? Yes? Learn from it, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's no word for guilt in Pali. <laughs> you know the distinction between shame cultures and guilt cultures, right? Um, this is something that Ruth Benedict came up with during World War II. The army, when they knew that they were going to be occupying Japan, 
unlike some other armies we know now, actually made plans for the occupation. <laughs> and one of the plans was to hire an anthropologist, the best anthropologist in the country with Benedict, to do an analysis of Japanese culture, saying, okay, would they respond properly to the, um, the occupation? Would it be a difficult occupation? Would it be an easy occupation? And after her study of Japanese culture, she came away with a distinction that she called the difference between shame cultures and guilt cultures. And it's based on how parents reprimand their children. And in a shame culture, the parent says, don't do that, it embarrasses us in front of the neighbors. Other people will see it, we feel embarrassed. In guilt cultures, they say, don't do that, it hurts me when you do that. And guilt, is, guilt tends to be a longer-lasting emotion. Shame is built on the question of, do you care what the neighbors think? This is one of the reasons why Bangkok is such a mess. You get people from the villages who, you know, they knew each other's families and everything, and it really mattered what the other people in the village thought about you because it reflected on your whole family. You go to Bangkok, and it's just a bunch of strangers. You can do what you like doesn't matter what other people think. Whereas in guilt cultures, of course, all we know, everybody has to go and get a psychotherapist to deal with the long-term, long-term problems. And someone says, what, in, in a shame culture, when people go, get crazy, they tend to be psychotic. And in guilt cultures, they tend to be neurotic. Yeah. So think about that one for a while. What's the definite? Yes. Yes. Conscience. There's, a, there's an element of shame. There's guilt, not so much. Um, here means that just thinking of doing something, you would be ashamed to do that, so you don't do it. And otapat means fear of the consequences. If I did that, then these things would happen, which I don't want to have happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. There is, there is a little element of shame, yeah, yeah, some fear. And, I mean, it's skillful fear. We, we tend to think, think of fear as being an unskillful emotion, but when you use it properly, it actually it's a good motivator. But, well, you know Thai. Does, is there a Thai word for guilt? No. It's one of those concepts that... <laughs> it's one of those strange Western concepts that we live with. So it's, it's not something that you would dwell on. That you're not encouraged to dwell on. The people, the, there, is, there is a word for remorse over having done something wrong. <clears throat> but the Buddha says if you let yourself get tied up in remorse, then it makes it difficult to do something skillful the next time around. So that you know, a good Buddhist parent would not prey on your feelings of guilt. Anything else? Clinging to remorse can also be kind of a self-hatred that develops over having made a mistake. And I mean, look at the attitude that the Buddha is teaching to Rahula here. It's a very mature attitude towards your mistakes. Realize, okay, mistakes are possible. Mistakes will happen, but they can be corrected. You can learn from them. So he's not encouraged to deny his mistakes, he's encouraged to actually look at them and then deal with them intelligently. 
exercise restraint the next time around. And I have, you know, I think that, you know, if we had all been raised like this, we'd be a lot better off. <laughs> okay. We have time for one more passage here. <clears throat> it's the big one. Since it starts with power and it's the psychic powers, let's start instead on the basis of power. Go to page six. <clears throat> okay, what is the base of power? That's the idibata. Okay, whatever path, whatever practice leads to the attainment of power, the winning of power. This is called the base of power. See that paragraph? It's um, one, two, three from the bottom of that passage. And what is the development of the base of power? Here's the case where a monk develops the base of power endowed with concentration founded on desire and the fabrications of exertion. Okay. Notice, notice base of power is left sort of vaguely defined, but this particular base of power is endowed with concentration. The concentration itself is founded on desire at, together with the fabrications of exertion. Now we'll find out later that the fabrications of exertion are the elements of right effort. So it's interesting that the base of power, think about that for a minute, right effort involves all four of those attitudes. Desire, persistence, intentness, and powers of discrimination. And that's coupled with desire as a basis for concentration. In other words, desire here is the predominant mode of developing that concentration. You develop the concentration, the most powerful thing in your mind at that point is that you want the concentration. And when that's coupled with right effort, then you get the concentration. So notice, desire is not a bad thing. In fact, there's one point where the Buddha says that all dhammas are rooted in desire. That's one of his more mysterious comments. I mean, everything you experience in life is rooted in desire, yes. Chanda, C-H-A-N-D-A. Well, there's the word there's the word danha, which is craving, T-A-N-H-A, and that's specifically in um, as a cause for suffering. That's the that's the craving that leads to further becoming. It's, it turns out not every craving leads to further becoming. Some forms of desire, and in fact, some forms of craving actually are useful on the path. You have to want to do it in order to do it. So it's. Um, so there's, there's basically a healthy desire and an unhealthy desire, skillful and unskillful desire. And this afternoon we'll get a little bit more into what makes a desire skillful as opposed to unskillful. So for the base of power, actually, you've got, again, he doesn't define base of power precisely, but it's endowed with concentration, and then it's founded on one, or the, one of these four. One of these four qualities is predominant. In some cases, it's desire. In some cases, it's just pure energy, pure effort, persistence. Well, I shouldn't say pure. This is the dominant factor in the concentration. In other cases, it's because you're paying very careful attention. You get concentrated. It's like somebody's playing Bach off in the distance and you want to hear the inner voices. You've got to listen very, very carefully because the desire is there. But, it, but the predominant mode at that point is the care or the intentness with what you're listening.
And then there's concentration that's based on powers of discrimination. When you can be very, very careful about focusing on okay, where you want to go and you can not get dis dis disturbed by whatever is going to be unskillful arising in the mind. So the base of power, as I said earlier, that, that list of the four qualities, that's just a shorthand list for the base of power. Actually, you've got your concentration is founded on or has one of those four qualities predominant and then it's coupled with right effort. That's how you develop the base of power. And then the path of practice leading to the development of the base of power is the Eightfold Path. Right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So in this particular passage, the Buddha is talking specifically about you know, the power, the psychic powers that can come from concentration practice. And how the concentration that forms a basis for that can either be, either have desire as its prominent element or persistence or intentness or powers of discrimination. And then as for the powers, wow. Back up. There's a case, look on the beginning, back on page four. There's a case in under where a monk won, wields manifold super, supernormal powers. Having been one, he becomes many. Having been many, he becomes one. He appears, he vanishes, he goes unimpeded through walls. Doesn't sound like fun? Ramparts and mountains as if through space. He dives in and out of the earth as if it were water. He walks on water without sinking as if it were dry land. Now notice what that particular power involves. Basically, you're changing the element of the object. And um, I didn't include it in this particular selection because I wanted to keep the, the pages, number of pages down. But there's a passage where Sarabhuta, who himself was not you know, the highest monk in terms of psychic powers, but he's had a few psychic powers to his name. He points to the monks one day. He sees that, he says, see that log over there? He says, yeah, okay. Now, in that log, there is the earth element. There is the water element, the fire element, um, wind element, space element. And it's by focusing on any one of those elements that you can interact with that log as if it were just that one element. Like you focus on you know, the, the fire element in there, set it on fire. Focus on the space element, you can walk right through it. I, my teacher had a, a friend one time, a monk, who really did have extreme like, psychic powers. All kinds of weird things he could do. Um, and someone once asked him, how do you do that? He said, we just switch the elements around. As if that were an explanation, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you some of his stories after lunch when, you, when you're more prepared to believe me. <laughs> okay, sitting cross-legged, he flies through the air like a winged bird. Now, we're not talking about transcendental meditation levitation, okay? I mean, this is really going, you know. You know, the transcendental meditators are kind of hopping. <laughs> With his hand, he touches and strokes even the sun and moon, so mighty and powerful. He exercises influence with his body even as far as the Brahma worlds. There's another passage in the canon where Ananda asks the Buddha, how do you do that? And the Buddha says, well, I just focus on the lightness of the body. Just 
think of the body. It's just when you sit there, concentrate. Just think light, 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 light. It goes. So, right. And then the analogy here is just as a skilled potter or his assistant could craft from well-prepared clay whatever kind of pottery vessel he likes, or as a skilled ivory worker or his assistant could carve from well-prepared ivory any kind of ivory work he likes. Same with a goldsmith, etc. In the same way, the monk wields supernormal powers. Okay. Second power, he hears by means of the divine ear element, purified, surpassing the human, both kinds of sounds, divine and human, whether near or far. And let you look at the analogy yourself. Third one, he knows the awareness of other beings, other individuals, having encompassed it with his own awareness. In other words, reads people's minds. Fourth one, you recollect, recollect manifold past lives. One birth, two births, three births, four, five, six, seven, and more. Yeah. Recalling that there I had such a name, belonged to such a clan, had such an appearance. Such was my food, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such the end of my life. Now, I think it's interesting that the memory focuses on those things. Your pleasure, your food, we are talking about feeding earlier, as being feeding being sort of the central fact of life. What kind of food you eat, what kind of pleasure and pain you experienced, and how you ended your life. Someone gave me a script one time, it was from an NPR show, it was basically um, the idea, the conceit behind the, the list was people from the dead talking about their last thought or their last experience before they died. And it was really unnerving. Yes. I, was, you know, like, I was sitting in the donut shop, I didn't think the truck would come through the window. <laughs> it's one of them, you know. <laughs> or, I thought I could make it when I jumped from one thing to the next. And, um, might wonder how your life ends, and, and it could be just totally random, totally dumb. I almost, I almost died one time, I was electrocuted. And the first thing that went through my mind was, <laughs> I thought, I'm going to die from my own stupidity, I didn't check the power. <laughs> Fortunately, something broke the power, so I didn't die. Okay, so it's recollection of past lives, is one of the powers. And then, the fifth one is, you see by the by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human beings passing away and reappearing. And you discern how they are inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate in accordance with their karma. These beings who were endowed with bad conduct of body, speech and mind, who reviled the noble ones, held wrong views and undertook actions under the influence of wrong views, with the breakup of the body after death, have reappeared in the plane of deprivation, the bad destination, the lower realms in hell. But these beings who were endowed with good conduct of body, speech, and mind, who did not revile the noble ones, who held right views and undertook right actions under the influence of right views, with the breakup of the body after death, have reappeared in the good destinations in the heavenly world. In other words, you see how beings die and pass, die and then are reborn in line with their karma. Now, these first five powers are not necessarily noble, and people can gain them simply through the power of concentration just through the force of will. And it's, and it's an important lesson to learn. Um, I'll go into more detail in the afternoon if you, want, if you want to hear more detail. But I met someone in Thailand one time who had extreme psychic powers and was very unscrupulous in how he used them. And the fact that he had the powers impressed a lot of people. He developed a large following through that, but then he was very unscrupulous in how he used those powers. So you have to watch out for this, because sometimes they can, you know, supernormal powers can turn your greed, anger, and delusion into supernormal greed, anger, and delusion. 
However, there is one of these powers which is considered noble, and this is number six. Through the ending of mental effluence, that's the word asava, A-S-A-V-A, also translation, could be translated as fermentations, you remain in the effluent free release of awareness and release of discernment, having known and made them manifest for yourself right in the here and now. And the analogy here is a nice one. Just as if there were a pool of water in a mountain glen, clear, limpid, and unsullied, where men with good eyesight standing on the bank could see shells, gravel, and pebbles, and also sh- schools of fish swimming about and resting. And what occurred to him? This pool of water is clear, limpid, and unsullied. Here are these shells, gravel, and pebbles, and also these schools of fish swimming about and resting. In the same way, you discern as it actually is present that this is stress, this is the origination of stress, this is the cessation of stress, this is the way leading to the cessation of stress. And then the same four, fourfold pattern applied to the effluence. Now notice what's happening here. Remember we talked about how the four, four noble truths were an extension of the distinction between skillful and unskillful. This is the point where your knowledge of what's skillful and unskillful in the mind becomes totally clear, like the limpid pool, the clear pool of water. And in seeing this fully, then your mind is released, released from the effluent of sensuality, effluent of becoming, effluent of ignorance. With release, there is a knowledge released. You discern that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There's nothing further for this world. Okay, that's the point where your pursuit of long-term happiness is opened up to an unconditioned happiness based on that knowledge. And that knowledge comes from what the Buddha taught Rahula. You, know, you reflect on your actions, see what's skillful, see what's unskillful, and just get clearer and clearer and clearer on those patterns. Any questions on these powers? Aside from how do you do them, I can't answer that one. Yes. Okay, well, that your actions are causing less and less suffering for yourself and others. That's what's important. Because these powers, I mean, even though they're based on developing skill, they can be used wisely and they can be used unwisely. And the presence or absence of powers is not proof of anyone's attainment. <clears throat> right. Not so much, it, it, takes, it takes some effort. It, the practice takes some effort. Yeah, but, but the, the goal, what is Yeah, okay, once, once, you, once you attain the goal, then, then the happiness that comes is a happiness that doesn't require effort. This is, this is the big distinction, because within the conditioned world, all happiness requires effort. And the question is, is it worth it? Okay, and in and of itself, the pleasures that come are not necessarily worth it, unless they can be used for, some, for a higher end. This is an important fact. That, you know, the, the pursuit of the Eightfold Path is basically a pursuit of things that leads to greater happiness. Now, if you just stop there at that greater happiness, there's a lot of effort has gone into, but then what happens when happiness comes? It doesn't necessarily last all that long. Even long-term happiness has its end. But if you can use the path to get to a point okay, where there, the happiness is unconditioned, requires no effort, you've arrived. Basically, you, you know, you, as, as, the, as the image in the canon is, you've hit solid ground. You're safe. 
Yes. Speaking of unsolid ground, if you're talking about these um, psychic powers walking through the rock or mm -hmm. the water, being an, um, essentially focusing on that particular element, mm -hmm. is that an aspect of four elements meditation? I mean, is that an outcome of... It can be, yeah. Mm -hmm. Affecting that kind of meditation mm -hmm. technique? Mm -hmm. And there may be times when it's useful. <laughs> but the question is, do you want to spend all that effort <laughs> to walk through a wall? You know? <laughs> walk around? <laughs> you can still walk around it. <laughs> We're running out of time right now. This is when we start getting the psychic power stories. But um, Yes, any questions before we go? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. I went to Oberlin College, you know. The culture was more inclined to believe it because they had seen more people do them. And of course, when you have that kind of thing, then it's easy for people to fake them as well, to some extent. But um, the important one, as I said earlier, is number six. You know, the ability to get rid of the fermentations, the defilements in the mind. And that's, when the, that's the one that the teachings are aimed at. Now, it just so happens that through developing powers of concentration, some people have these other powers. They're listed here. I mean, if these ever happen to you, one, don't mistake them for awakening. Okay? Don't mistake them for awakening. Because some people feel, you know, they've... They can, all of a sudden they've got these powers. They can change things. They can influence things. This must be it. This. So one, don't mistake them for awakening. Two, if the powers does come, then your responsibility is to use them wisely. And if you never encounter them, just think of them as you know, interesting stories. And believing in these powers is not a necessary part of the path. You're never asked to believe in these things. But it's like... There's a, there's a biography of a John Munn that's out that focuses a lot on psychic events. I don't know if you've seen it. In his life, as John Munn never talked about these unless he, his students were having similar experiences. And then he, he would explain, well, when this happened to me, this is how I dealt with it so it didn't become a problem. Now, the problem with the biography is it takes it out of that context. It just becomes a straight narrative for people to believe or not believe. Whereas when John Munn was using these as teachings, he was just pointing out, okay, this, if you have this thing happening in your, in your meditation, you've got to be careful. And here's how you get past whatever dangers it may hold. So that's, that's, I think that's the best attitude to have towards it. That if it happens to you, okay, the instructions are here. If it doesn't happen to you, it's like, it's like the map to Siberia. I mean, if you're not going to Siberia, you don't have to know it. I mean, it's good to look at it sometimes if, for entertainment purposes, but it's not that necessary. Right. Yeah. 
And that's also a useful lesson right there. I mean, if you knew someone who could read your mind, it does not necessarily mean that that person's awakened. So the fact that they can read your mind doesn't mean they'll use that knowledge wisely or with compassion, necessarily. So it means you don't get blown away by people with psychic powers. As we've seen happen in our country already. Yeah. And its powers are not just for the future. Right. Students can have them too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes? Tells not to display them in front of lay people. You immediately get this picture of the monks off in the forest and showing off by themselves. <laughs> Before we break for lunch, I will tell you one story of monks showing off their psychic powers to each other. Um, unless there's a more pressing question. John Lee, who was my teacher's teacher, was reputed to have lots of powers like this. And the one power he didn't have was to, was to levitate, but he could make other people levitate. So the story goes. Mm -hmm. And my teacher told the story one time. They were on a, on a sort of a monk camping trip. They call them Tudong in Thailand, where the monks were camping out under this <clears throat> grove of trees, which was in the old palace in Ayutthaya. Being enormous. There's a fruit the Thais call putsa, and I don't know how you translate that into English. It's, it's a little tiny thing. It's like an apple, about you. Anyway, the, the trees are enormous. Do you know in the UTI at the, at, the, at, the, at the Grand Palace in the UTI, they have old, old trees and they have huge spreading limbs. So one evening they were sitting in a circle meditating under the limb and there was a young boy who had come along with a group who was, you know, who would carry their things for them and help fix their rice and that kind of thing in the morning. <clears throat> so they put him in the middle of the circle and then John Lee says, okay, now we're going to make him levitate. And they hung a rope down from the limb he said, now, if you find yourself levitating and it scares you, grab hold of the rope okay, so you don't fall. And so, okay, the kid said, okay. So they got him meditating, and sure enough, the kid started rising off the ground. And when he realized he'd risen off the ground, it was too quick for him even to grab the rope. He was so startled, he fell. And he couldn't walk for two days. <laughs> there was so much. <laughs> so, and that's monks showing off their psychic powers to each other. So, anything else before we break? There was another story that John Fung didn't tell me, but he told one of his friends. Um, and the, eventually came back, came back to me after he'd passed away. There was another time they were sitting in a circle. And he began to notice that the monk sitting next to a John Lee suddenly rised off the seat and lowered. And then the next monk up off the seat, down. And he came coming around the circle. He saw it coming around the circle to him. He said, I'm not going to let him do this to me. <laughs> and so he just thought of earth as much as he could. Heavy, 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 heavy. He meditated. And sure enough, as the time came to him, he felt this force kind of pushing from him. <laughs> he fought it, fought it, and didn't rise. And then after the meditation was over, they were going back to their umbrella tents. And John Lee turned to him and said, stubborn. <laughs> time to break for lunch. Thank <laughs> you.